Lots of you know that I am a parent. My boys are now three, five, and almost seven. I remember going through this phase with all of my kids, but particularly with my youngest, where he just really wasn't sleeping. He wasn't a baby baby anymore, so we weren't in that baby stage where he needed to be up every two hours, but he was still up every two hours, and he always wanted me. And I remember praying every single night, begging God for sleep and for rest. And every single night, my son was up. That season was hard for me. I knew that God loved me. I knew he heard my prayers. I knew he knew my needs. I still believed, but my faith was challenged by this ongoing sense of fatigue and also that feeling that my prayers were just bouncing off of heaven. I don't know if you have ever experienced that feeling, but it can be really discouraging, especially as it kind of builds up over time. So what do we do when we face challenges to our faith? Despite what we know to be true about God, we meet different challenges throughout life. Some of them come through external circumstances that introduce discouragement and doubt. Other challenges arise from the internal condition of our own hearts. In today's passage, we encounter two different challenges to faith. And I want to draw your attention to what I think is a common response that we see in the text. To provide some context, today's passage immediately follows the Transfiguration. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, so it's fitting that we would note that here. Um, the Transfiguration was this miraculous mountaintop event in which Jesus' glory was manifested to his disciples Peter, James, and John. As he descends the mountain, Jesus is met by a crowd in a heated argument. A man has brought his son to be healed, but the other nine disciples had been unable to cast this demon out in Jesus' absence. Interestingly, both Matthew and Luke also include this encounter in their gospel accounts but Mark spends significantly more time on it. Mark gives us a vivid picture, and he reiterates details about the boy's condition to set the scene for us. And in doing so, he really highlights the need for faith. As we look into this passage, I want to zero in on two sets of characters. First, the boy's father, who faced external challenges to his faith, somewhat like my story of sleep deprivation, but much more extreme. And then the disciples, whose faith was affected internally by their own self-reliance. As we look at them, we'll see how we are called to respond when our faith is challenged. So first, I want you to consider this man. He has watched for years as his little boy has been victimized by a demonic presence. This is terrifying stuff. Mark provides a lot of detail about the boy's condition. He is thrown into convulsions. He is foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth and unable to speak. This violent presence isn't just torturing the boy. It is out to destroy him. The father describes how the demon has often thrown the child into fire or water to kill him. This man has done everything he can for his child, and he probably has burns and scars on his body to show for it. But ultimately, he is powerless to deliver his son from the evil one. 
but he has heard reports of Jesus's ministry, that Jesus has authority over evil spirits, and that the, he and his disciples have been traveling throughout the region, preaching, healing diseases, and casting out demons. Hope sparks in this man's heart, and he believes that here finally is a cure for his child. So the man brings his son to Jesus. But when he arrives, he finds that Jesus himself is absent. And when the disciples try to cast out the demon, they fail. The man's hope dissolves into disappointment. Maybe Jesus wasn't as powerful as the reports had led him to believe. Maybe Jesus couldn't help after all. Have you ever wondered that? At this point, the man could have gone home, given up. Jesus can't help me, so I'm going to go look somewhere else. But I think it's telling that he stayed. Did you notice that when Jesus returned and asked about the argument, this man was the first to speak up? Not the disciples, who had been deeply involved in ministry with Jesus. Not the Jewish scribes, who were trying to trap him and kill him. This man steps out of the crowd and addresses Jesus directly in the midst of his disappointment. In the following exchange with Jesus, the man makes two statements that exemplify both his struggle with doubt and his continued belief. First, he says to Jesus, if you can, please have pity and help us. Of course, the if is a telling qualifier here. The man is no longer absolutely sure of Jesus's ability to heal his son. The disciples' failure has introduced some doubt in his mind about the outcome of the situation. But he is still there, asking Jesus for help. Part of him still wants to believe that Jesus is every bit as powerful, wonderful, kind, and loving as they say he is. And he continues to seek Jesus, despite his doubt. In response, Jesus tells the man that anything is possible for the one who believes. I would love to unpack that statement, but for now I'm going to focus on this man. Because here we get his second statement. Immediately, he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a profound and poignant expression of the struggle for faith in moments of doubt. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If we were to boil down this man's experience, we could say that his faith was affected by external circumstances. Specifically, his faith was challenged by the suffering of his son and then the failure of Jesus' disciples. We shouldn't be too hard on him for questioning Jesus at this point. What do you think are two of the most common reasons people cite today for not believing in Jesus? Probably the two we see right here facing this man, suffering and failure on the part of Jesus' followers. Of course, the failures we see in our culture aren't often related to casting out demons, but moral failure and lack of love in the church can pose serious roadblocks to faith. If I can take a moment on this point, I would like to acknowledge the hard truth that the people of God will likely let you down at some point. If you've been in the church for a while, you're probably familiar with this phenomenon. If you're newer to the church, this may come as disappointing news. And 
Uh, If you've been avoiding the church, maybe this has something to do with it. Maybe you have been personally let down by Jesus' followers. Or maybe you've just seen enough garbage on a societal level to lose your taste for Christianity. Wherever you are in relation to this challenge to faith, I would like to highlight the fact that failure on the part of God's people is not equivalent to failure on God's part. I want to say that again. Failure on the part of God's people is not equivalent to a failure on God's part. God has not failed you, and he will never fail you. Though others let me down, the Lord will never let me down. Though others hurt me, the Lord is my healer. Though others may sin against me, the Lord is faithful and he forgives my sin and their sin. Psalm 27.10 says that even though my own father and mother may forsake me, the Lord will receive me. His love never fails. Jesus' disciples were not able to cast the demon out of the man's son. But as we'll see in a few moments, this was a reflection of something that was lacking in their faith, not something that was lacking in Jesus' power. So if you have been let down by God's people and your faith has been challenged by this, I'd like to invite you to spend some time with Jesus to remind you of who he is. Read the Gospels. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. The man's response to Jesus in this situation highlights for us that doubt is not antithetical to faith. In fact, it's a pretty normal part of our walk with God. But do you see what this man does when he's faced with his doubt? He acknowledges his limits, and he leans on Jesus. He acknowledges his limits and leans on Jesus. In the same sentence, he expresses both his doubt and his trust. When faced with the finitude of his own faith in light of external circumstances, the father cries out to Jesus in prayerful dependence, asking Jesus to meet him in his lack. Help my unbelief. The best thing we can do with our doubt is to bring it to God and ask him for help. Will you bring your doubt to him this morning? Now I want to go back and look more closely at the disciples in the story. Remember, Peter, James, and John had been up on the mountain with Jesus, while the other nine stayed behind with the crowd. These disciples had all been granted authority over demons, as Mark has told us twice already in his gospel, once in chapter 3 and again in chapter 6. Jesus had appointed them and commissioned them for ministry, and they had traveled around successfully, healing diseases and driving out many demons, as Mark tells us, as they preached the good news of God's coming kingdom. So why weren't they able to drive out this demon? Well, they asked Jesus this very question because they were wondering the same thing. In response, Jesus tells them that this kind can only be driven out by prayer. Now, this response is interesting because this is the first time that prayer has been explicitly mentioned in this passage. Mark didn't even record a moment in which Jesus paused to pray before he successfully cast the demon out of the boy. So this should signal for us that Jesus is pointing them to something other than a particular set of words or a type of prayer. Scholar Mark Strauss notes the intimate connection between prayer and faith. 
He says prayer is more than just communicating with God. It is acknowledging one's dependence on God for all of our needs. So prayer is acknowledging our dependence on God for everything. This suggests that the disciples had stopped depending on God. See, their challenge to faith didn't come from external circumstances, but rather from their own previous successes. Evidently, they had started to think that their authority over demons came from their own power, or from their status as Jesus' disciples, or from techniques that Jesus had taught them. Their successful ministry led them to believe on some level that they could handle things on their own. The tricky thing about this sort of challenge to faith is that it can be so subtle and gradual. The disciples didn't even seem to realize what had happened. They had to ask Jesus why they'd failed. Whereas doubt and discouragement are often obvious when we face them, self-reliance can be harder to recognize. But in calling them to prayer, Jesus was calling them back to a greater dependence on God. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. At this point, I'd like to highlight the fact that the disciples' gradual shift from depending on God to depending on themselves and their own abilities had serious implications for the people around them. Their lack of prayerful dependence on God resulted in a challenge to the man's faith, as we looked at a few minutes ago, not to mention the boy who continued to suffer from demon possession. Our culture tends to individualize faith. The prevailing attitude is that my faith is my own. It's a private matter between me and God. But whether or not you are actively placing your faith in God will inevitably have implications for the people around you. Think about the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. These qualities affect the people around us. And if we are not living in prayerful dependence on God, then we will fail eventually. To give you an example, I can tell you from experience that my own hardest days as a parent are the ones when I'm least prayerful. And if my kids know I'm a Christian, but I am incredibly impatient, how do you think that might affect their understanding of God? Even if you are not parenting young children, there are people in your life who need you to be depending on God. If your neighbors know you're a Christian, but you're not particularly loving, do you think they'll be drawn to Jesus through your actions? What about your friends or your classmates or coworkers? What about everyone in our church family? How you live affects the whole body. And this isn't hypothetical. People have actually been driven away from the loving arms of their savior because of the failure of his people. Of course, Jesus is the only one who can save. There's no question about that. But shortly after this passage in Mark 9, Jesus warns the disciples against being a stumbling block for others. And we would do well to consider that seriously, what that means for us. But this doesn't just mean that you need to try harder or pray harder. We're not talking about fortitude, as if you just need to drudge up more faith from some internal reservoir. If you try to rely on your own strength or experience or resources, you will eventually run out of steam, like the disciples did. Instead, 
Remember the father in this story. He acknowledged his own limitations and he threw himself on the sufficiency of Jesus. This is what we need. And it's what the disciples should have been doing the whole time. It just took them a while to realize it and recognize their struggle. So we've looked at two challenges to faith in this passage. One that came as a result of external circumstances and one that resulted from a sense of self-sufficiency. Both of these remain common, and I think we can all relate to one or the other of these, or both. I think Mark highlights that the correct response in both cases is an attitude of prayerful dependence on God. I chose those words carefully, prayerful dependence, because I don't want you to go home thinking, okay, I just need to pray more, or okay, I just need to have more faith as if it all falls on you. That would be the opposite of the point. Do not go home thinking that you need to rely on your own strength. Instead, this is about bringing the little that you have to God and trusting in his strength to supply what you lack. It is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I trust you. Help my mistrust. Lord, I love you. Help my lack of love. Lord, I am grateful to you. Help my ingratitude. Recognize your limits, whatever they are, and bring them to Jesus. He is faithful. So if I may ask you this morning, how's your prayer life? Does it reflect the heart of a person who is dependent on God? Without him, we can do nothing. Do you actually, deep down, believe that? The Apostle Paul exhorts us to pray continually, without ceasing. And I think that's a wonderful picture of this attitude of prayerful dependence on God. But it can also be a little hard to understand, right? What does it mean to pray continually? One commentator explains it by saying that rather than some sort of nonstop verbal praying, Paul is pointing us toward, quote, constantly recurring prayer, growing out of a settled attitude of dependence on God. I love that phrase, a settled attitude of dependence. He goes on to say that whether you're using words or not, the point is a sort of lifting of the heart to God. Throughout the day, while you're occupied with whatever miscellaneous duties you're called to, verbal prayer is a sort of punctuation to the larger awareness that you are always dependent on God. So wherever you are today, whether you find yourself relating more to the doubting father or to the self-assured disciples in our text, I pray that you would be reminded of God's faithfulness to meet you there, that your faith would be strengthened, that you would be renewed in prayerful dependence upon him who is able to help in times of doubt and to supply what you are lacking as only he can. Amen.